Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. For most people, the idea that dogs can pick up your thoughts and intentions is not a problem. I mean, lots of people have dogs that do it. Um, for most people, the idea of telephone telepathy is not a problem because it's happened to them. It's happened to more than 80% of the population, according to surveys that have been done by me and others. So most people aren't uh, upset about these things. They're interested and intrigued by them. But people who've committed to a materialist view of the world uh, which usually is the worldview of people who have, are committed atheists. Um, they are committed to a view there's no God, there's no consciousness out there, the universe is made up of unconscious matter following scientific laws, um, there's no purpose in the universe, and the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. Then, for someone who believes that, the idea that telepathy could exist where your thoughts or intentions could have an influence at a distance just doesn't fit with that worldview. So people who believe that, especially those who've made it a kind of almost fundamentalist religion, some people have, um, then they get incredibly angry at the very suggestion that telepathy might happen. The internet is full of trolls who think like that, who just attack anything uh, in a completely irrational way. They just, they don't argue against the evidence or, or look at the experiments. They just unleashed torrents of abuse. Do all paths lead to God and is gratitude the key to a healthier, happier and longer life? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with British biologist, researcher and author Rupert Sheldrake, whose latest book, Science and Spiritual Practices, has just been published by Coronet Books, where Richard argues... Rituals cross time, bringing the past into the present. Richard goes on to state, telepathic connections usually occur between people and animals who are emotionally bonded. So what is meditation all about? Is there a difference between a psychic and a spiritual realm? And why has society turned its back on so many meaningful rituals? Hello, my name is Rupert Sheldrake. I'm a biologist and author of quite a few books. Uh, the most recent being uh, Science and Spiritual Practices, which has recently been published by Coronet. Um, I live in London, and in this book, I try to show how seven different spiritual practices, which are common to all different religious traditions, have been investigated scientifically. In, and the scientific research has shown that these practices work in the sense that they have positive beneficial effects on people. And these are all practices that can be done within the context of religion or outside the context of religion for people who are not following a religious path. Really well done on the book, Rupert. I have to say it's a very spacious and interesting read and you bring up all sorts of different questions in relation to religious practice and all that goes with it. And um, it's, it's excellently put and some of your own personal backstory really, really adds value to it all. I might throw you um, a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can play it by ear. When I say spiritual but not religious, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it usually means um, people who have a belief there's something beyond the merely material realm, that there's forms of consciousness out there that are beyond the mere human level. And people who have 
some kind of spiritual practice, like meditation, for example. Um, so there are people who believe in, in, in something beyond the human level, who have practices that help connect them with it, but don't fit within any established religious structure. The majority of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious are people whose ancestors were Christian. You don't meet many Hindus spiritual but not religious, or even Muslims spiritual but not religious. So I would say it's a, uh, almost like a kind of post-Christian form of spirituality. Do you think it's possible to talk about spirituality and spiritual practices in, a, in, a, in rational terms? Like, what do you think? Oh, totally. I mean, that's exactly what I'm trying to do in this book. Uh, for example, meditation, which is probably the, one of the most widespread of all spiritual practices um, uh, today, um, you can talk about in very scientific terms. When people meditate, you know, it lowers their blood pressure, they tend to sleep better, changes the level of stress hormones in the blood, different parts of the brain light up when they're meditating. Um, and people who meditate regularly um, tend to be less depressed than those who don't. And in fact, in Britain on the NHS, you can now be prescribed meditation for mild or moderate depression because it's been shown in clinical trials to work better than antidepressant drugs. So that's all completely rational and scientific. Um, what it doesn't, of course, science doesn't really explain consciousness. It's the so-called hard problem for science. Um, it's, no one knows why we're conscious in the first place. Obviously, it's connected with the brain. No one's quite sure how. Um, but the talking about spiritual practices like meditation can be done completely rationally. And the point about spiritual practices is they're about experience. They're not about accepting doctrines or dogmas. They're about um, experience. And that's why they're so attractive to many people, including me, um, because you start from experience, you don't start from theory. And that's the great strength of this approach, I think. You, you were born into a Methodist uh, family, uh, Rupert, and um, you're, I find your backstory very, very interesting. You spent some time in your 20s on a Catholic ashram in India, I think it was in the late 70s. And you've also spent a, a significant time in other um, um, religious types of orders. So can you talk me through that? Well, yes, I, my family were Methodists. I went to an Anglican boarding school in England. Um, so I got a kind of fairly conventional um, Christian upbringing. But by the age of about 14 or 15, I'd become rather atheistic, um, partly because I was studying science. And for my science teachers, science and atheism were just part of the same package. You know, one went with the other as far as they were concerned. And I accepted that. Um, and then when I was a student in Cambridge, and in fe indeed in, in my 20s, I was, remained pretty atheistic. Um, but I began to change when I went to travel through India in, uh, when I was about, what, 26 or something. Um, I, I traveled through India and came across Oriental cultures that completely fascinated me. I was very intrigued by Hindu temples and Hindu holy men and Hindu meditation. And, and then I traveled through Sri Lanka and visited a Buddhist monastery and had a long talk with a Buddhist monk there about the nature of consciousness. And this sort of opened up whole new perspectives for me. 
Um, when I got back to England, I discovered psychedelics, and that was a completely new uh, mind-opening experience. And um, but I wanted to it made me interested in the nature of consciousness. Um, but I wanted to be able to do it without drugs, so I took up transcendental meditation. And several years later, a chance came up of a job in India. I was very fascinated by India. So um, I went to India to work as an agricultural scientist in an international institute. It was a high-powered scientific institute and a kind of international scientific job. So it was a good job, and it was a very interesting work. But for me, what was so uh, good about it was not just the work, which I loved, but the chance to explore Indian cultures. I went on to temples. I went to hear discourses by gurus. I did yoga and meditation. And I also came across a great Sufi teacher who lived near where I was working in Hyderabad. Um, so I had a Sufi teacher as well for about a year and did a Sufi form of meditation. Um, and then gradually through all this, I began to realize that actually I was much more attached to my Christian roots than I'd thought. And I refused to get confirmed at school. I was the only boy in my year who did. But I then got confirmed at the age of 34, I think, in the Church of South India, uh, which is an Anglican church in India. And then I discovered this astonishing uh, Roman Catholic Benedictine monk, Father Bede Griffiths, who was living in a small ashram in the south of India on the bank of a holy river, the Corvary. And uh, I was completely amazed that such a person could exist. And he wore the orange robes of the, of the Indian holy men, and um, the ashram was very Indian style. It always started with meditation every morning and evening, and there was yoga every day. Um, the mass started with the chanting of the Gayatri mantra, and I was very surprised by all this when I first went there. And I said to Father Bede, how can you chant a Hindu mantra in a Catholic ashram? And he said, well, precisely because it's Catholic. He said, Catholic means universal. And if it excludes any path to God, then it's just a sect. So I, he had an extremely inclusive approach, uh, which I was very moved by. And um, so I wanted to write a book. Um, I took some time off from my work in India. And he said, well, if you want to write a book, come and live in the ashram. So I spent a total of about two years living in his ashram, which is where I wrote my first book about biology called A New Science of Life. Uh, when I came back to Britain after my time in India, I had a completely new take on the Christian tradition. I mean, I, I saw that the, the whole thing was rooted in, 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 in a mystical tradition that came out of the Middle Ages and out of Celtic Christianity that was very closely linked to nature, um, you know, with sacred places and pilgrimages and holy wells and all that kind of thing. I loved all that. Um, and reconnected with this uh, Christian tradition. Um, my wife is, uh, as well as being an Anglican, a practitioner of Dzogchen, a form of Tibetan Buddhism. So, um, you know, I'm, it, it's definitely not a kind of exclusive kind of Christianity I follow, but I think having a central path that unifies things is, for me, important. Rupert, I'm wondering, do you think we all have a capacity in us to develop our sensory and spiritual awareness? Like, do you think it's possible for everybody? Or do you think it's only certain types of people who can follow on that path? Oh, I think it's potentially possible for everybody, but you have to be motivated to do it. And I think the interesting thing about meditation and the, the spread of meditation, which I discuss in my book, 
is that this is now being rolled out, meditation training courses in many businesses, in many schools. Um, uh, in Britain, over 100 members of parliament meditate regularly together. Um, it's being used in, um, in prisons. Um, so, you know, it's not for everybody, but it is for an awful lot of people, and it works very well. Uh, Another spiritual practice is usually seen more in its physical aspect is yoga, and uh, millions of people do yoga. Um, you know, not everyone's interested, but I think that these are not just niche activities for a tiny minority of people. You picked up a very interesting question, Rupert, you, when you were talking about um, meditation, and you asked the crucial question is whether meditation enables our minds to connect with a mind or a mind vastly greater than our own. So what do you think? Well, I think it does, but I don't think it's necessary to believe that in order to meditate. A lot of atheists meditate. Um, now, even one of the new atheists, Sam Harris, one of the most militant ones in He's America. He's a very committed meditator, isn't he? Very committed meditator. And, you know, he now gives online meditation courses. And here in Britain, Susan Blackmore, who's a prominent public atheist, has been doing Zen meditation for years and goes around advocating it. Now, they think that meditation is just changing the activity of different parts of the brain different nerve connections, changes in neurotransmitters and so on. And it does do those things, um, but it's possible for people like that and many other people um, to meditate without thinking it goes beyond their own brain. Now, the reason meditation developed in the Hindu and Buddhist and Christian tradition is contemplative prayer, and in the Sufi tradition and the Sikh tradition and in many other religions, is that uh, people thought that by meditating, going to the ground of consciousness, the kind of basis of our own consciousness, they were connecting with the source of consciousness itself, namely God or the ultimate reality. Um, and the reason for meditating was that connection with the divine or the greater-than-human level of consciousness. Um, that's why they were doing it. And that's what I think is happening. Um, but a lot of people who meditate don't think that's what's happening. And the good thing about meditation is you can do it whether you believe that or not. Um, I myself think that it's more meaningful and helpful if it is a connection with something beyond ourselves. But if you think there's nothing beyond ourselves, then it still works. And that's what's so interesting about it.